Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you here at Gospel of Grace. I want to thank this congregation for allowing my family and I to take some time on vacation. We had a wonderful time. I always tell people up at the cabin, it's a precursor of the Millennial Kingdom, but it has mosquitoes and are, are biting flies, and so you know you're not in the kingdom, right? So, but thank you all for doing that, and thanks, Adam, for filling in, and Bob for continuing all the wonderful hard work. So, well, I'm excited to be back in the book of Romans with you. Romans 5, notice verses 9 through 11. Now, I want all of you to recall that the last time we were in the book of Romans, what Paul wanted us to understand was that you and I could be confident of future glory all because Christ died for us. Well, now in verses 9 through 11, Paul says that you and I can be absolutely confident of future glory because Christ lives for us. And so that's why I titled the message, We Are Spared from God's Wrath by Christ's Life. Now, I'm going to give you further introduction in the next slide, but let me begin by reading the whole context of this passage. Romans 5, 9 through 11, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Feel free to follow along in your own. Paul said this, he said, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now, dear ones, last time, remember, I showed you this chiastic structure, the way that Paul formulates his thoughts, all the way from Romans 5 all the way to Romans 8. And it is my contention that the major theme that Paul is addressing throughout this entire section is what you see highlighted in green. That is the hope, the assurance of future glory that we have as believers. So recall in the first four chapters, Paul laid out a very detailed treatise on how a wayward sinner could be made righteous through the atoning work of Christ and through faith alone. And so then when he gets into chapter 5, he talks about the hope that we have in light of that finished work. So notice this morning, we're going to be finishing Romans 5, 1 through 11, which you see at the top highlighted in green. But that section can again be broken into two parts. Verses 1 through 8 of Romans 5, we can have assurance because Christ died for us. Romans 5, 9 through 11, that's today. You and I can have assurance because Christ lives for us. And so what Paul is saying is, look, if you could be absolutely confident, and you can, of future glory because Christ died for you, obviously he's not going to allow his son to die in vain. How much more can you have absolute confidence that you're going to go to glory because Christ is reigning and living for you? Think of it this way. In John 10, 27 through 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give to them eternal life, they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. What Paul is teaching us in these verses today is the reason you and I can be absolutely confident of the resurrection and future glory is because you and I are not being held in the grip of a dead man's hand. We are being held in the grip of the resurrected Christ. That's the point that Paul is driving home in these verses. All because Christ intercedes for us, you and I can be confident of the future glory. So with that, let me begin in verse 9 
where Paul teaches us that Christ is the one who saves us from the coming wrath. Paul writes this, he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, notice at the outset we have a therefore. And what should you ask when you see a therefore? What's it there for? Amen. Well said. Well, what Paul is doing is he's building logic off of verse 8. Remember verse 8? God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So now Paul is saying, well, since God has sacrificed his son to reconcile us, you and I are certainly going to be preserved to glory. That's the much less difficult thing now that you and I have been reconciled through the death of the son. And so that's the logic now that Paul is building into this text. Now notice right after that, the phrase, he says, we have now been justified by his blood. And of course, by his blood is a reference to what? It's the atoning work of Christ. But I'm particularly interested in this phrase. We have now been justified because as Paul uses it, he's putting a sandwich together. He's combining two ideas. He's combining past action through the participle having been justified. But notice he adds a now. There's an adverb. And the focus, therefore, is on the present status that we have as a result of what God did for us in Jesus Christ. What you and I have to realize is that as believers in Christ, no matter where we go, you and I are uniquely the ones who always have right standing before God. That's our present status. But in light of this present status that we have, there are future ramifications to it. And that's what he turns to in the red. He says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, I'm going to come back to the much more. What Paul is using is a greater to lesser argument. Not a lesser to greater. I think he's making a greater to lesser. And I'll explain that on the next slide because he's going to do it again in verse 10. So hold on to that. Put it in your back pocket. We'll come back. But notice here that he wants us to understand that there's a future salvation. In fact, sozo here, the term for save, is in the future tense. So the idea is that we shall be saved or rescued before the coming eschatological wrath. That's Paul's point. That is the future wrath that will come in the day of the Lord. Now, as I say that, I think this requires some explanation as to how Paul has used wrath thus far in the book of Romans. So let me do a little reminder with you. Recall back in Romans 1.18, Paul said that the wrath of God is being revealed currently from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, that would certainly indicate that there is a current manifestation of God's wrath. But when we unpack the rest of Romans 1, What we found was that the way God's wrath is manifested now is that sinners in their unregenerate state are handed over to their own sinful desires so that they end up doing sinful things. And like cattle, they end up fattening themselves up for the future wrath that will be poured out. And that's what we see in Romans 2.5. In fact, if you will, turn your Bibles to Romans 2.5. I want you to see the connection between Romans 2.5 and what we're seeing on the screen before us, Romans 5.9. Again, please turn to Romans 2.5. So again, Romans 1.18, the current wrath 
leads people to be handed over to their sinful desires. You get to Romans 2.5. He says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, and of course he's talking about the unregenerate without Christ, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So notice that there's a wrath that's coming in what? The future day of the Lord. And what Paul is saying here is that you and I as believers in Christ are going to be spared from that coming wrath. Think of this analogy. Think of all of humanity that has ever lived in history as being on the river of history. And we're on a raft, and every single person is on this raft going down the river of history. And at the end of the river is a waterfall. It's the wrath of God. It's his judgment. And what Paul is teaching in this text is that through Christ, God is going to take certain people off of the raft before it goes down the waterfall. You and I will be rescued from the wrath to come. That's wonderful news. Now, from this text, there's two big points that I want to leave you with. Number one, we know that the wrath of God is real. Number two, it is what we must be saved from. Okay, now I say that because so many today claim that what you and I need to be saved from is economic disparity, some sort of social injustice. Their gospel is far more in keeping with Karl Marx than it is with Jesus Christ. Let me ask you the question, do you think that Jesus had to live a sinless life and had to die a propitious death on the cross to spare us merely from social injustice? No. What he came to do was to spare us from the wrath of God. Now, saying that, one day when Christ reigns in his kingdom, yes, all of the other injustices, if there are some, will be done away with, and there are. But he came to save us from the wrath of God. That's important because if you and I don't understand the bad news, the good news of the gospel will never make any sense. The good news only makes sense in the light of properly understanding the bad news and what we're being saved from. Now, one other point I want to make here is notice that salvation from the coming wrath is exclusively through Jesus Christ. Paul said that we're justified by his blood, past action, and present results. In future, we will be saved by him from the wrath of God. Everyone see the underlines? Notice the emphasis on salvation is through Christ alone. And this, of course, is why Jesus says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you want to be spared from the wrath of God, it's Jesus Christ alone. No addition to him and no one other than him. It's Christ alone. Now, as we come to verse 10, we see the certainty of our future salvation again come up. And notice here Paul uses a four. And Paul is using it to give further explanation as to how you and I can know with confidence that we will one day have glory and salvation. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, I want you to see that Romans 5, 9 and and verse 10 should be interpreted together. Paul uses the same much more in both of them. And by doing so, what Paul is using is the old rabbinical tradition of arguing from either heavy to light or light to heavy. We would call it greater to lesser 
or lesser to greater. Now here, I think Paul is arguing from greater to lesser or more appropriate would be from the more difficult to the less difficult. And the whole reason he's doing that is so that you and I as the reader can have confidence in the future salvation. So let me explain. Notice here in verse 9, that's what we just looked at. In verse 9, what was Paul doing? He was using a legal argument from the courtroom of God. You and I have been justified through the death of Christ, and that's forever our status. And so then he breaks into his greater than lesser. If God has already removed the greater or more difficult obstacle to our future salvation, namely our sin debt, through the death of his son, how much easier will it be for him to do the less difficult thing and to spare us from his coming wrath? And again, the whole argument is designed to give us confidence. It's not that being that God is all-powerful, he can certainly do all things. Paul is using the argument to show us what confidence we should have. Well, then, in verse 10, Paul switches from a legal argument to a relational argument. So no longer is Paul using the language of the courtroom and the fact that you and I have right status. Now he switches to the language of interpersonal relationships, that you and I have been reconciled, no longer enemies of God, no longer at enmity with God. We have a saving relationship with him. Uh, What he's saying then is if, in fact, you and I can be saved and reconciled through the death of his son, how much more can God do the less difficult thing and save us through the life of his son? And so notice in this text that the focus is on the fact that you and I shall be saved by his life. Why? Why is it so important that you and I would be saved by his life? Because Jesus Christ in his resurrected state always lives to make intercession for us. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. He acts as our defense attorney. He always says that we are his people and that we belong to him. And so this is why when we get to Romans chapter 8, and Paul comes back to this theme of the assurance of future glory, he asks the rhetorical question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And what's the answer? Nothing and no one. Why? Because Jesus Christ lives for you and I. Jesus said in John 10, 27 through 28, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give to them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And the reason you and I can be absolutely confident that we're heading towards glory, again, is we're not being held in the grip of a dead man's hand. We're being held in the grip of the resurrected Christ. Now, as we go on to verse 11... This present confidence that we have now in the future glory means we should rejoice now. That's Paul's point in Romans 5.11. He says that not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now, everyone, I want you to notice this phrase that I have highlighted or read. Notice the term exult. I mentioned this back in Romans 5.2 that the term is probably best rendered joyfully confident. Why? Well, because you and I can be absolutely confident of glory now because we are the ones who have been reconciled and are no longer enemies of God. So that means presently you and I can be joyfully confident. 
we can exalt and rejoice in what God has done. Now, I want you to see the connection back to Romans 5.2. Romans 5.2, the same term was used. Paul said, through whom? That's, of course, Jesus. Also, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult, there's the same term, in hope of the glory of God. Now, why am I laboring that point? What I'm showing you is that Paul had the same term in verse 2. Now he has it in verse 11. It's an inclusio. They're bookends of this section. And what that shows us then is that the theme Paul is driving home is the assured hope that we can have. And that has present-day ramifications. You and I should rejoice and be confident in it right now. You know, as I was thinking about this passage this week, there's a verse that came to my mind that kind of summarized our attitude and what it should be in light of the hope of glory and all of what Christ has done for us. And it's how many have heard of Psalm 118.24, Today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let me tell you a story how I got it wrong, this verse, and how a nurse at a hospital got it right. Seven years ago, almost to the day, my son is going to be seven on August 1st. The time just flew by. But seven years ago, he was born. And, you know, normally it's a joyous time for us all as parents, but I was a nervous wreck. Here's why. He came five and a half weeks early. And just prior to him being born, we had had a meeting with a nurse who said, the longer you keep him in the oven, the better it is for his lungs. So here I am so concerned that his lungs are going to be underdeveloped. So I'm in the hospital. My wife is going to have birth. It's a long process. And I'm sitting there and I'm kind of sulking. And I'm kind of down. Right? The reason why is I'm so concerned for his lungs. Why, Lord, couldn't he just be in her womb just a little longer? Well, there's a woman. She's a nurse and she's a believer. She's from Ghana. Just a wonderful person. And she sees me sulking and kind of miserable. And she knows I'm a believer. We had talked. And she doesn't seem to think that this is right the way I'm acting. And she was correct. So she comes up to me and she says, hey, you have to know that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I have to tell you, I, I wish I could say I was really spiritual and I just met, but initially I was annoyed. After all, can a guy have his own time of sulking? <laughs> I thought I was entitled to a little bit of sulking. And, and number two, I thought here, I've studied this passage in context and doesn't she know that this day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it, is really the day of salvation? Let me tell you why. Two verses earlier in Psalm 118.22, it says that the stone that the builders had rejected, God has made the chief cornerstone. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, initially, the context of that passage had to do with the first Feast of Tabernacles, I think more than likely, that occurred in the rebuilt temple in 515 B.C. And the stone that was rejected were the Jews themselves. And they were marveling in the fact that God now had brought them back into the central plan of salvation. Now, as time goes on, the stone that was rejected is seen not as Israel, but as the Messiah. And ultimately, the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it, is the day that Messiah, the stone that's laid in Zion, who was rejected, is the stone that reigns over the whole world. That's why Jesus cites from verse 26, you will not see me, he says to the Jews in the temple, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. 
So ultimately, the passage is about salvation. And I'm thinking, why can't I just sulk? And why do you take this passage out of context? But the more I thought about it, she was right and I was wrong. And I was cut to the heart through this passage because I think, here's this woman who's living joyfully with great confidence in light of her future salvation. And I'm supposed to be this man of God, a minister, and I'm sulking. And what I started to realize is that in light of the future glory, yes, in a sense, every day is a day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. All because you and I are held in the grip of the resurrected Christ. I think that that's Paul's grand point in verses 9 through 11 here this morning. Okay, now, with that, I have three other applications and implications that I want to get into. Number one, we should understand that God's wrath is a future certainty, but a present-day uncertainty. Now, if that's a little unclear, let me unpack that. What I want to do is address the issue of various people who claim that any given calamity, whether it's a tornado or a hurricane, they will claim it is certainly the wrath of God upon some certain sinner or some certain group. What I want to address and say is, no, we can't know that here and now in the church age. What you and I can know is what the scripture has revealed through the apostles and prophets, and that is that there's a day of wrath that's coming. Let's be content with that. Number two, we should know that believers will not experience God's wrath. Dear ones, if you've been spared from the wrath of God, no matter what problem you have, you have the world by the tail. You have the greatest problem that humanity has resolved, spared from the wrath of God. We should rejoice in that. Number three, we can rejoice in our future glory because of the resurrected Christ's work on our behalf. That's what we'll end with. So let's begin with number one. That is God's wrath of future certainty, but I'm saying a present-day uncertainty. And again, what do I mean by that? Well, so many today confidently claim that, for example, 9-11 was the wrath of God. Or Katrina, the hurricane, was the wrath of God. And so they say that all of these people who endured that must have been worse sinners than others. Now, as I start formulating this argument, and I'm claiming that we can't know whether anything is the wrath of God now in the church age, someone would come to me and object, and they'll say, well, wait a minute, Eric. Does it not say, and it does in 1 Corinthians 11, that in fact because of the abuse of the Lord's Supper, that some died. It does say that. In fact, I believe that's the wrath of God. But what I'm claiming is this. How do we know it's the wrath of God? Because it's in 1 Corinthians 11. It was written by the Apostle Paul. We don't have an authoritative apostle or prophet now on the scene of history in the church age to tell us whether or not any given calamity is in fact the wrath of God. All right? So what I want to begin by showing you is that God's wrath in the Scripture is often future-oriented, all right? Now, many are surprised by this, but the future orientation has to do with the fact that this coming day of the Lord is going to come, certainly, it's taught in both the Old and New Testament, but it's also an imminent affair. Why? Because the Apostle Paul teaches us in 1 Thessalonians 5-2 that this future day of wrath will come like a thief in the night, Now, thieves don't give you warning, do they? They don't say, well, hey, you know, I'm coming at midnight. You better get ready. They don't do that. So it's an imminent affair. It's certainly coming, but it's future-oriented. 
Now, let me give you some passages that I think indicate this. Here is one out of Matthew 3, 7. Here you have John the Baptist engaged in ministry. He says, but when we saw, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, notice he does not say, who told you, brood of vipers, to flee from the wrath that's currently poured upon you? He could have said that. He doesn't. He focuses on the future day of wrath. And again, let me show you the passage that I showed you earlier, or read to you earlier, Romans 2.5. Paul says the same thing, doesn't he not? Romans 2.5, he says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, again, talking about unbelievers, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the, what? The day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Notice Paul throws it in the future eschatological age. All right? Now, this morning... Romans 5, 9. What does Paul say? He says, much more than, remember his greater to lesser, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved. Again, future verb of sozo, future tense. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So notice again and again, the wrath of God is depicted as coming in the future age. So what that means is two things. Number one, yes, we can be confident God's wrath is coming and we should warn people. But I think we should be circumspect when we start declaring any given event here and now to be the wrath of God. Why? Because we can't be sure about them. We cannot be sure whether any given calamity, hurricane, tornado, a car accident heart attack, cancer. We don't know if it's the wrath of God. We don't know. Now, what's the risk in claiming it's the wrath of God and it's not? Well, if we're claiming it's the wrath of God and it's not, are we not saying, thus saith the Lord, presumptuously? Certainly we are. And if we're saying it's the wrath of God and the unregenerate thrive and believers in Christ are under the gun, under persecution... Are we not saying then that God's justice is wayward and ineffectual? And if you and I say everything is the wrath of God, does that not seem to indicate a heart that doesn't want the unregenerate to find the same mercy and the same forgiveness that you and I had, but it seems to be indicating a heart that wants to call down fire upon the enemies of God. So for those reasons, I think we should be very circumspect. Now, let me give you a passage to illustrate this. Here's John chapter 9. Bob read, to, read this to us not too many months ago. It was very wonderful. Uh, John 9, here you have the story of the blind man. He's born blind. Listen to what it says. John 9, 1 through 2, it says, as he passed by, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. Now, notice in the thinking of the disciples, it's binary. It's either this man's sin or it is because of the parent's sin that he's born blind. It's either or. And the implication then is the blindness is the wrath of God. Why? It's either the man's sin or it's because of the parent's sin. Now, listen to what Jesus does with this. John 9, 3 through 5. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, 
but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Dear brothers and sisters, think about this. What Jesus does is he comes up with a third option. It's not because of the man's sin, and it's not because of his parents' sin. There's a third alternative. It wasn't wrath at all. In fact, the blindness was because God was going to be glorified through that calamity. Dear ones, in Isaiah 55, God says that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. And we don't always know why any given calamity comes. So lest you and I make the mistake that the disciples made here, let's just say we don't know why any given calamity came. All right? Now, again, I mentioned earlier that I think if you and I start saying, well, you're under the wrath of God and you're under the wrath of God, that can smack of a heart that wants to call the judgment down rather than see people saved. Turn your Bibles to another passage. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 55. I was talking to Bob about this passage. And by the way, he's going to be getting into great detail with the connection between Luke 9, 51 through 55 in the book of Acts in Sunday school. So please keep coming to Sunday school to hear that. But my point is very limited here. Here, I want you to see that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He's going through Samaria. Now, what's the problem for Jews going through Samaria? Well, the Samaritans and the Jews don't get along. The Jews think of the Samarians as half-breeds because so many were imported into the northern kingdom after their destruction in 722 B.C. The Samaritans hate the Jews. Why? Because the place of worship is in Gerizim. It's not in Jerusalem. And so you'll see that animosity play out here. It says, Now when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set out resolutely to go to Jerusalem. Now we're in verse 52, Luke chapter 9. He sent messengers on ahead of him. As they went along, they entered a Samaritan village to make things ready in advance for him. But the villagers, these would be the Samaritans, refused to welcome him because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now, notice in verse 54, what's the reaction of the disciples? It says, now when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire to come down from heaven and consume them? What's the attitude of his disciples? Let's just call the wrath of God on them right now. Now, what does Jesus do in verse 55? It says, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, why did he rebuke them? Well, think about it. Jesus in his first advent, according to Luke 19.10, he came to seek and save that which is lost. So his disciples right now are on a different mission. They're coming to wipe out that which is lost. And if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, I dare say you should be on the same mission that he is. Dear brothers and sisters, the mission now isn't to destroy those who are lost. It's to follow Jesus and to seek and save that which is lost. And so in any given calamity, dear brothers and sisters, let us be the first to put our arms around people and to give them the gospel, to love them and to want to see them see salvation and God's mercy and God's grace just as you and I have. You and I, when it comes to biblical preaching, we must preach about the wrath of God to come 
We must do that. But let's be content with that. If it's good enough for John the Baptist to warn about, it should be good enough for us. Okay, I think that that's an important implication here from Romans 5.9. Okay, now with that, let me turn to my second point. And the second point is glorious. And that is you and I will never experience God's wrath. Let me show you some key texts that teach us this elsewhere. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10 here. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the Christians at Thessalonica. And he says this, he says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. That would be those at Thessalonica. And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Let's just stop there for a moment. Notice that's repentance. Turning from idols to the true God. Okay, so remember, I've often said that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. If you turn from idols to serve the living God, implied is you came to faith in Jesus. And if you came to saving faith in Jesus, what you've done is you've turned from idols to serve the living God. So saving faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Now, let's keep going. Notice in verse 10, he says, and he says to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So notice Jesus is going to rescue us from this wrath. Literally in the Greek, it's the coming wrath. The participle is in the present tense. And I think the reason why the present tense denotes this ongoing action. It's always coming. It's always at hand. It's always a threat. It is imminent. Now, let me talk about imminence for just a moment. There's two things that causes the future wrath to be imminent. And for that matter, for any event to be imminent. What causes imminence, number one, is that the event is certain to happen. But the second thing required for imminence is that you don't know when it's going to happen. Will the day of wrath come? Yes, certainly. When will it come? You don't know. So two implications from that is, number one, The wrath of God can break forth at any time. But number two, it does not have to break forth within any given time period. So whether it comes five seconds from now, five minutes from now, five years from now, 500 years from now, it can come at any point, but it is not limited to come within any certain time frame. But what is being taught here by the Apostle Paul is that whenever it comes, you and I will have been rescued from it. That's the idea. Okay, now let me show you another very important text that teaches the same thing. Later on in the same book, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason this text in particular is so important is because in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is talking about the day of the Lord that it comes like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. So the point is that you haven't been destined for that wrath, but to obtain salvation. Now, think of the implication of people who say, and many did, whether they be teachers on TV, pastors, discernment ministries, they said, you know, 9-11 was certainly the wrath of God. What's the problem with that? If there was one believer in Jesus Christ who was within that wrath, do we not make God out to be a liar? And again, that's why you and I have to be so circumspect in saying that was the wrath of God, this is the wrath of God. No, let's just warn people about the wrath to come and assure them that through Christ and Christ alone, 
he is the only way to be spared from this coming wrath. That's what we ought to be about. Now, let me leave you with another text whose implications I don't think the church at large has grasped. This is Revelation 3.10. Revelation 3.10 is a promise that Christ gave to the church at Philadelphia, but by extension, he gives it to all Christians because he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Okay, now, notice here in Revelation 3.10, he's talking about those at Philadelphia who kept his word, They're believers. They kept Tereo. They guarded or kept his word. What does he say? He says, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Dear ones, what is Jesus going to keep them from, and by extension all Christians, from the hour of testing? Now, the hour of testing cannot be some localized tribulation. Why? Because it infects the whole world. Does everyone see that? It is the worldwide judgment that is coming. Now, let me give you a paper. I know it's kind of tacky to do this in a sermon, but there's a man who wrote a great article on Revelation 3.10, and I hope every Christian reads it. The man's name, he's a British scholar, is Thomas Edgar, E-D-G-A-R. The title of it is Robert H. Gundry and Revelation 3.10. Again, Thomas Edgar, the title of the article is Robert H. Gundry, a post-tribulationalist in Revelation 3.10. Now, the reason that's such an important article is what it shows is that this preservation, the being kept from, means you're kept from on the outside of the day of wrath. It's not that you're in the wrath and that you're taken out. No, the combination of the verb and the preposition means you will never enter in to that time of wrath. Please read that article or forever be ignorant of the implications of Revelation 3.10. But brothers and sisters, let me say, as you unpack the data, the wonderful news is this. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, have the world by the tail. If you are spared from the Holy One of Israel's wrath, no matter what problems you have, and I know so many of us do, no matter what problems we have here and now, they pale in comparison, don't they? Brothers and sisters, rejoice that you've been spared from the wrath that's coming upon the whole world. Okay, now, we come to our third point. And the third point is that you and I can be assured of this future glory all because Christ intercedes for us. Why does the Apostle Paul think that Christ's life is so significant for our future salvation? Because Christ is the one who's depicted in Scripture as the priest who is in the order of Melchizedek. Bob mentioned that passage this morning in Sunday school. Psalm 110.4, David says that the Lord had said about the Messiah that he was going to be made a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, who always lives to make intercession for us. And I think that's exactly what Paul's point was in Romans 4.25. Recall, this is just 10 verses earlier from what we read today in Romans 5.10. Romans 4.25, I like the NIV version here because it handles the prepositions for, well, the dia. It says, He, that's Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, as you read that, you might say, well, wait a minute, Eric. Wasn't our justification resolved once and for all by Christ's death on the Son? Oh, yes. But in our salvation, God piles on because you and I are going to be saved absolutely through the death of Christ, 
but we're also going to be spared because Christ always lives to intercede for us. And I think that that's the point that Paul's making just 10 verses later today in our text in Romans 5.10. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, if that, and that's really difficult, how much more, having been reconciled, can he do the lesser difficult thing? We shall be saved by his life. Dear brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus always lives to intercede for us. And we see this unpacked in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, it's very interesting. In chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews says, you had all of these other priests, and they were never, ever eternal. In fact, he said you had to have so many priests because they kept dying out. But in response to all of these priests in the Levitical system who were temporary and who died out, he contrasts Christ. Hebrews seven twenty four through 25, he says, But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 25, here's his conclusion. He says, Therefore, he is able to do what? He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. What that means, dear brothers and sisters, is no matter where you go in this world, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have a Savior who is interceding for you. He's praying for you. He's claiming you to be his own. And what Paul laid out for us again today is that means you can be absolutely confident of the future day of glory all because you are not being held in the grip of a dead man's hand. You are being held forevermore in the grip of the resurrected Christ. And it's for that reason you can be confident today and say today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much, not only for what you've done for us through the death of your son, but the fact that your son reigns on high, seated at your right hand, and lives to make intercession for us. We're so grateful, Lord, that we're held in his firm grip and that in the weeks and months and years ahead, that even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I pray, Heavenly Father, that the family and friends that we know and co-workers that are not saved, that we would have opportunity to warn them about the coming wrath. And I also ask, Lord, that you would give us as an opportunity as a body to be those who console and comfort those who have suffered calamities, that we'd be able to console and comfort with the gospel. They'd be able to point people to Christ so that they'd be able to trust in him and have eternal life. We thank you, Lord, for these promises. We thank you, Lord, that we can live joyfully now in confident expectation of that future day. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.